Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So you may know any number of versions of the word that we're going to be using today. You might have heard of sepsis or septicemia or septic shock. Um, this is, like a lot of the shows we do, it's been an education for all of us to do the show uh, and to learn about this incredibly dangerous um, condition. Uh, it affects more people than you might imagine. It's more dangerous than you might imagine. And I think one of the really kind of standout aspects of it is that it's less well-known than it ought to be. I mean, it ought to be at least as well-known as, say, diabetes. But in fact, I think there was, I think it was Gallup. Gallup or somebody polled on this at one point. They asked Americans if they knew what sepsis was. Uh, and the response rate was lower than 50 percent, fewer than half of Americans uh, had a workable understanding of what that word meant, and most of them just were not familiar with the word. It's kind of amazing that that would be the case based on all of the things that we're going to tell you today. And I've, I think I've never said this about a show that we've done, um, although it could have been said about other shows that we've done, but this is one of those shows that really could save somebody's life. I mean, if you listen carefully to this show and, and with any luck, within, with uh, any help from heaven, you won't ever confront all these problems. But if you do, uh, you might actually know how to recognize them a little sooner. Uh, and it really is the difference between life and death. This is a very scary thing. Uh, it's something you also you, you also might have heard about recently. It was the cause of death for Muhammad Ali. Uh, it was the cause of death for Patty Duke, for Jim Henson. Uh, and we're going to explain to you what it is. And uh, so in the middle of the show, you're going to hear an interesting history, uh, a, a bit of history about somebody who in the mid-1800s, actually started to figure out uh, in a kind of imprecise way what was going on uh, and tried to institute some meaningful changes uh, and then wound up dying of the very condition we're talking about today. Uh, and then towards the end, we're going to hear uh, from two men whose uh, offspring, whose uh, son and daughter, respectively, died from this condition and have kind of made a point of, well, have in fact started foundations that begin to uh, address some of the things that we're going to talk about today, including that whole public education piece. But our guide all the way through is Dr. Ulysses Wu. He is Chief of Infectious Disease for St. Francis Hospital uh, and Medical Center, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Connecticut. Uh, and uh, so let's begin right at the beginning uh, when we're talking about this. We're not really talking about a disease so much as we are talking about the way the, the body reacts to an infection. Correct? That is correct. I mean, it, it's sepsis, as you stated, is, is a term that uh, maybe not a lot of people are understanding of what it is, and that's because it is maybe too broad of a term. Mm -hmm. Sepsis refers to a lot of different things, not just an infection itself, but how the body responds to infection. And sometimes it is how the body's response to this infection that can actually lead to overwhelming consequences. And the overwhelming consequences, it seems to be the body kind of overreacting, right? Kind of declaring a nuclear war on, on an infection that 
a normally regulated immune system would deal with in a, in a much less extreme way? Yes, uh, sepsis itself. So our bodies are exposed to multiple antigens from the minute that we wake up to the minute that we go to bed. And even when we're sleeping, we're still exposed to the antigens. But in response to infection, it usually starts out as local. But what happens is when these local pro-inflammatory mediators exceeds the local capability of dealing with it, and that's when it becomes systemic and thus what we call sepsis. And then the risks become what? Organ failure is one of the sort of extreme risks, right? Absolutely. Sepsis can lead to um, what we call multiple organ dysfunction or multiple organ failure and ultimately sometimes death, unfortunately. And one of the things that we've learned just getting ready for the show is that anybody can get this. I mean, there are people with very high risk factors. We can go through what those are, but there isn't anybody who's excluded from this risk. There is absolutely nobody excluded from this risk. And, and, and that it can start rather simply. I mean, some people start with, you know, a bad burn or, or a deep cut. Yes. Uh, what happens in those uh, examples where we think it's just a cut, it doesn't mean anything. What we can't see is what's happening at, uh, in an, at immune system level and what's happening at a deeper level. And sometimes these cuts can proliferate uh, and your immune system responds to it and sometimes an over-exaggerated response. And then this is what happens. Um, there are other ways in which it starts. I mean, uh, uh, appendicitis, UTIs, stuff like that, right? Yes. Uh, the most common would probably be from pneumonias. They've actually looked at different types of infections in different parts of bodies. An infection, by definition, uh, is basically an invasion of a bacteria in what we would normally consider a sterile site. Now, the problem with this, I think this was just published in a journal recently, that if you were to look at the entire human microbiome, we have a Approximately 43 trillion bacteria in and on our body at any given time. And so we live in sometimes mostly perfect happiness with these bacteria. But the analogy I like to say, sometimes they grow up and they become unruly teenagers and they get out of where they're supposed to be and they invade these sterile spaces. Do, do we actually know, though, why this happens? In other words, I mean, I've had cuts, I've had infections, uh, you know, in the course of a year. Everybody, everybody has stuff that conceivably could begin that cascade uh, into septic shock, but it doesn't most of the time. Do we know what triggers it? Well, the trigger is the is the actual infection itself. So we do have to say that sepsis, by definition, has to include an infection. There are a lot of people that are diagnosed with sepsis that actually do not have sepsis because they are uh, they are septic looking due to other. Uh, issues such as motor vehicle accidents, pancreatitis, burns, trauma, things like that. But they're not, it's not actually infectious. And so what will happen is uh, that this immune response that, that occurs in response to these bacteria or viruses, what happens is that your, your systemic inflammatory response will increase as a result. Um, and we're, I know we're starting to make people nervous as they're listening to this. We don't mean to, although this is – it actually is something. You should at least uh, know what the symptoms are and, and, and what to do if you have them. So one of the problems, as we're, we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Wu about, is the fact that some of these symptoms mimic symptoms of other things. There are, as you just said, there are people who don't have sepsis who look like they do. There are also people who do have sepsis, but it goes undiagnosed because it looks like so many other uh, other things. But it, the, what are the things to, in particular, watch for? 
Well, what what we need to look for is, is there a focus? Because all these have to deal with a focus of infection. Mm. And where is this focus coming from? So if you come into the hospital and I interview you, I'm going to ask you a series of pointed questions that leads me to a direction. So is it in your brain or meningitis? Is it in your lungs? Did you have a preceding cough? Uh, Do you have urinary tract infections, uh, dysuria, or what we call pain upon urination? Did you have cellulitis or skin infection? So once I can identify a source, it certainly helps me in in terms of determining whether or not this is sepsis. Now, on the minus side, there are things like influenza, not influenza pneumonia, but influenza Mm -hmm. that just sort of give you this malaise, this feeling of illness or what we call flu-like syndrome that doesn't have a specific source. And by then, we have to actually look at different symptoms such as fevers and chills and malaise and myalgias, body aches, things like that, that would say, okay, maybe this is sepsis. And so so the things to watch for in general would be a high fever. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Uh, oh. some, some people have states of kind of almost mental confusion. Yes. So mental status confusion. A lot of the stuff that we use to diagnose sepsis, unfortunately, is what we evaluate in the hospital, whether it be radiographic or laboratory. Mm. But what people should watch out for, I guess, is fevers. If they have chills, if they have a focus of a body part that just doesn't feel right to them. Mm. Oh, it hurts when I pee or my kidneys hurt or I've had this cough for a couple days, or I can't bend my my neck because I have meningitis. So these are things, these focal signs and symptoms that would lead us to the possibility that you may have sepsis. Um, the size of this problem surprised me. The CDC says, the CDC says there's over 1 million cases mm-hmm. of, sepsis, of sepsis in America annually. Um, uh, the cost uh, of treatment in hospitals, the cost of sepsis hospitalization treatments is higher than the cost for anything else uh, by quite a bit. Um, and and the CDC seems to think also there – well, actually, we should actually talk about risk factors before we get to that. So there are people who are just in risk groups. I mean some of them are the very young. Some of them are the very old. But also people who are dealing with uh, other conditions. Maybe you could mention a few of those. Sure. Absolutely. So some of the risk factors, uh, it was common – I shouldn't say it was commonly thought, but maybe mistakenly thought that you have to be in the hospital to get sepsis. Actually, many of these people come from the community. They have never been near a healthcare center. They've never been in a hospital. They develop pneumonia. Uh, they develop meningitis from outside in the community and they come in with sepsis. But that being said, being in the ICU is a risk factor for developing further sepsis. Having bacteria in your blood is a risk factor for having sepsis. Being of elderly age or advanced age is certainly a risk factor immunosuppression, so people who are on immunosuppressive drugs or on chemotherapy. Malignancy itself is a risk factor. Uh, diabetes and having pneumonias or previous hospitalization are also risk factors. And I think uh, this seems to be on the rise. And, and part of this, obviously, is we have a a population that's aging. People live longer. People who have chronic diseases that would have killed them sooner uh, live with chronic diseases longer. People have more invasive procedures. I mean, in a way, we're we're running a labor- laboratory about how how what other ways there are to to have sepsis occur simply 
by the way that we live and the fact that we've extended our lifespans. I think that's actually a great point. I mean, if you look at it in pure scientific terms, if you take everybody's age and you take that as points of data, if we increase our age, we are increasing our points of data. And by increasing our points of data, yes, we will start seeing many more episodes of these because of our ability to to, to advance our age and to to really uh, increase the average lifespan of the of the human uh, uh, adult. Now, we're going to talk in just a second about how sepsis is treated, but um, my plan for sepsis is to not get it. Um, <laughs> and, and so there are some basic things that you can do. I mean, obviously, if you have these risk factors, you have them. Um, but I mean, one thing that's clear to me now is anybody, if you get a cut and you don't treat it, you're crazy, right? I mean, you absolutely should be you know, washing the cut out and putting some kind of neosporin stuff on. Those kinds of little basic things and obviously also just generally washing your hands. I mean, that's going to drop the sepsis rate as much as anything might. I, I think good hygiene certainly does help. Washing hands, tending to wounds after they've happened. But believe it or not, our our human body is actually very, very good at dealing with these bacteria or even simple cuts that our immune system deals with it to the sense that it localizes the infection and sometimes we don't need to do anything with it. You can probably remember growing up or even now having many cuts and you didn't do a single thing with it. You certainly mm-hmm. didn't wash it uh, or take care of it. They didn't even have bacitracin when I was growing up. Well, they did have bacitracin. I just didn't get any. Mm-hmm. Um, but simple things, believe it or not, when you brush your teeth, believe, when you brush your teeth, you, you introduce a certain amount of bacteria into your bloodstream when you brush your teeth. Your immune system is very efficient and very good at taking care of these. It's not necessarily infection. It just walls off the bacteria and then takes care of the bacteria. So our immune system is good. That is actually our best source of a defense is maintaining an intact immune system. Um, I'm assuming that the sooner you get to this problem and begin treating it, the better you, better off you are. Although, as we said, it is sometimes hard to, to discriminate between that and other things that kind of look like it. But, but what, how, how do hospitals treat sepsis? So sepsis used to be treated as sort of this uh, – I, I'm not going to say a black box, but it was it was sort of this entity that just came in, and it was this generic term that we used to say, okay, they're septic, this is what we need to do, and there were no protocols. But as protocol, as time has gone on, protocols have been developed, and sepsis bundles have been developed. So when somebody comes in and they meet the criteria for sepsis, and that sepsis, remember, by definition, has to include infection. And if they've meet, met those criteria for sepsis, we have a bundle uh, here at St. Francis that we actually take a series of labs, we evaluate them, and then we give them resuscitation. So blood pressure is one of the most important things that we want to maintain. And if it is truly sepsis, we give antibiotics that would target that type of infection as well. When you say blood pressure is important, is, is the blood pressure going high or low or what's it's, happening? I'm sorry, a low blood pressure. And that low blood pressure is due to many factors. It's not just due to the bacteria itself. Sometimes the bacterial cell wall induces low blood pressure. Sometimes the toxins that it carries induces blood pressure, but also the pro-inflammatory cascade that your body develops in response to this bacteria will also have a low blood pressure. You know, as I read more about this and Betty, our producer, studied more about it, one thing I kept thinking is, there isn't. I mean, that just sounded good, what you just said, that there's a bundle, there's a plan uh, for dealing with this. But for the most part, there's not a lot of really good news about this thing. And, and one of the pieces of bad news is that there almost seems to be an echo effect, right? You get out of the hospital, you go home, you think, well, 
well, that was my experience with sepsis. But it hasn't worked that way for everybody, right? There's sort of a post-sepsis sepsis. Well, there is post-sepsis. Obviously, there's mortality associated with sepsis. Mm -hmm. But there is significant morbidity that is also associated with sepsis. And so they may – it's not necessarily that they have immune dysregulation, that they're necessarily going to be prone to more sepsis thereafter. But they do – they do suffer the after consequences because part of sepsis is organ dysfunction. And sometimes Mm -hmm. those organs don't always come back to where they actually should be. Now, the problem with sepsis, and people should not be scared of sepsis because it, it is what it is, and it has existed since the beginning of mankind, and also in animals, believe it or not, they, have, they get sepsis as well. But it's a fine line of what I have actually termed as sepsis as something being overdiagnosed and also being underdiagnosed. So is it underrecognized? Absolutely. But sometimes it is overdiagnosed to the point where we say that everything is sepsis when in reality sometimes it is not. So the line keeps getting smaller and we need to walk that fine line to make sure that we do appropriate treatments. And sometimes we don't want to overtreat them as well. So as I said before, the CDC says it's uh, the number of cases diagnosed anyway is on the rise. And that could be because there's chronic illness that doesn't kill people as fast. It could be because people are getting more invasive procedures, uh, taking more immunosuppressive drugs, chemotherapy, organ transplants. Uh, but another possibility, obviously, is increasing antibiotic resistance. How much, in your opinion, of this problem is due to our reliance on antibiotics? That's a very good question. So multi-drug resistant uh, organisms is a huge issue that is happening. You've probably uh, heard about the colistin, the the mega-resistant bacteria that was found in Pennsylvania that was originally in China. And uh, the, the reality is that we are running out of antibiotics. Now, when somebody comes in... Uh, it depends on their antibiotic exposure and their chance for multi-drug resistant organisms. But multi-drug resistant organisms by themselves is a risk factor for overwhelming, I guess, uh, mortality or morbidity associated with sepsis. And so the antibiotic resistance itself is not the precursor, but it does portend a, a risk factor that if you have been exposed to a lot of it and you are septic with a multi-drug resistant organism, then our ability to treat you is much less. And and I've also read in some of the literature, I I don't know what your thoughts about this are, but that, you know, one of the questions is, okay, how can I make sure that I recover, that I recover effectively? Um, In in some sites, there's a suggestion that trying trying to do things that reintroduce healthy bacteria into the biome uh, may be be good, right? Either whether you're like eating live culture yogurts or actually taking, taking supplements. Where are you on that one? Oh, so that's a, that's a great question. I've always said, except in certain populations, taking probiotics, uh, the only thing it hurts is actually your wallet. The mm. problem with probiotics is it's not really monitored exactly what probiotics you're getting or how many probiotics that you're absolutely getting. So, uh, like I said, it, it hurts your wallet, but there's very little downside to doing it. The uh, the the data on probiotics on and sepsis, uh, there's probably not much of an association that it's going to help. But in general, the, there is a huge amount of literature that is pouring about the human microbiome, those mm-hmm. 43 trillion bacteria. That that is out there. And actually, one of my specialties is focusing on antibiotic reduction. Mm-hmm. And because I do believe that every antibiotic that you get alters that human microbiome, whether you, it happens as a child and has uh, deleterious effects as you go into adulthood or as an adult, and you can get something uh, which we call life-threatening diarrhea or Clostridium difficile, which, by the way, is a cause of sepsis as well. 
Right. I mean, it's not just something you believe. That's well established, right? That yes. If you take antibiotics, you're changing your, your microbiome. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're gonna, you're going to hear something that was actually recorded earlier in the day, earlier than the conversation you're hearing right now, uh, with a researcher in Australia. We're going to go back in time, back before people even understood the so-called germ, germ model or germ theory of disease. Uh, and so they didn't know enough to wash their hands. This story of sepsis, like a lot of scientific stories, involves uh, other stories and, in fact, the kinds of stories that you often hear of undiscovered or mostly unsung and unheralded uh, pioneers who figure something out before the rest of the world does. Uh, one of those people is somebody you're about to hear, Ignaz Semmelweis, and here to tell us that story is Leah Ginevan, medical student, writer, and health policy researcher. She wrote an article on Semmelweis for Method Science in the Making. Uh, she's joining us right now, uh, actually. I'm taping her earlier in the morning, but she's joining us from Australia. Uh, so welcome to the show, Leah Ginevan. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So uh, set the scene for us. We're in the middle of the 19th century, and we're in Vienna, where Ignaz Semmelweis uh, is the chief resident of obstetrics. And what's going on? Well, it was an interesting time. Um, it, it was right around the time when medicine was undergoing a big cultural shift from fairly unsubstantiated practices passed down from individual clinicians to more of a focus on data and figuring out why some things worked and why other things didn't. So Semmelweis became, the, as you said, the chief obstetrician at Vienna General Hospital in 1846. And at that time, it was fairly common for doctors to deliver their babies without washing their hands, without changing their clothes. And unsurprisingly for the time, there was a huge mortality rate for women who had just given birth, in childbirth as well, but also shortly after childbirth, uh, which was called childbed fever. And when Semmelweis became the obstetrician there, he was curious because there were two clinics in the hospital. Uh, In the first clinic, around 10% of women would die, and some months as many as 30%. And in the second clinic, the mortality rate was much lower, only around 3%. And so he was curious to find out why this was the case. And it was so much lower. The, the difference between the two clinics was so much lower that, I mean, women from the city knew that one clinic was more dangerous than the other and would, uh, as I understand it, beg uh, to go to the safer of the two clinics and even sometimes deliver in the street rather than go into this clinic that, that they'd heard had this high mortality rate. That's right. And People who could afford to have births at home would, so and generally those births were much safer. They would have a doctor come out and attend to the woman in childbirth. Uh, at, this, at his clinic, uh, were admit, women were admitted to the first clinic on one day and then the following day to the second clinic. And so it was a real luck of the draw thing that people, if it was the day that they were being sent into the first clinic, they would beg and give birth in the street and then take the baby to the hospital and say that it just happened so they could still claim the benefits that were uh, for healthcare and that kind of thing that were uh, available through the hospital. Now, what we don't have at this point is what we now think of as conventional germ theory. There wasn't really a solid scientific, scientific widespread understanding of how diseases spread. And so some of us didn't have that. But what he sort of had was 
an experiment in the making. I mean, by no particular design, he had two clinics that had a lot of things that you could control for, a lot of things that you could make kind of identical, and then this glaring difference in terms of outcome. So I guess what he did really was to treat it that way and try to figure out what could I change in the more dangerous of the two clinics so that it would get results more similar to the safer of the two clinics. And and mm-hmm. I gather he tried other things before he hit on a solution. Yeah, he did. He tried a bunch of different things. He thought at one stage the, the sound of a yeah. the bell ringing, that the priest praying for the dead was causing people to go into a fever because they were scared of death. And so he banned the priest from, from the ward where that was happening more, the first clinic. And there was different, like a few different practices in the, the second clinic. People normally gave birth on their sides rather than uh, lying down. So they tried that, didn't make a difference. The, the, the main difference between the two clinics was that the first clinic was run by doctors and medical students, whereas the second clinic was run, run by midwives. And it was that discovery that actually, well, that, that was the difference that uh, ended up being the experiment that he was able to design his right. findings around. And, and in a way, uh, there's probably a less, an even less well-sung person who, who, you know, inadvertently gave up his life in order for this discovery to happen, right? He, he had a colleague who had what we now kind of call a needle stick, right? An accidental sticking of himself. Uh, was it while doing an autopsy? It was. So um, Semmelweis was really perplexed by this whole situation. And he, he went away for a while um, on holidays and came back and found that a close friend of his had died shortly after doing an autopsy. And he died in a very similar way to a lot of the women who were in the first clinic. And he was he realized there was some sort of connection between these the two. And, and, and as it turned out, the first clinic where the medical students and doctors worked, all the people involved in that clinic had exposure to cadavers. They were doing autopsies. They were teaching dissection. And then the same doctors, often without having washed their hands, without, their, without having washed their clothes, would then go and deliver a baby and then another baby and then another baby. And by contrast, in the midwife clinic, they had no exposure to cadavers, so that they were free from those, what he, what, he, what he began to think of as cadaverous particles. Right. So Dr. Zimmelweis gets kind of the wrong conclusion, but he has the right solution. He thinks that there are these things, these cadaverous particles that are getting stuck to people's hands. He's not far from the truth, but he doesn't quite have it right. But he he knows you need to get something off your hands anyway. So that's well, that's close enough. That's great. So he decides what that he's going to have these doctors wash their hands, and and I guess it, he picks also again fortuitously, maybe for reasons he doesn't quite understand. He thinks a solution of chlorine and lime, right, would be the thing to wash your hands in? Mm, yeah, so he, he thought getting rid of the smell would be important, and yet this chlorinated lime solution was very effective in doing that. And it turns out that chlorine is a very effective antimicrobial. It cer- certainly was for the time. So he had all the doctors and medical students who were delivering babies in the first clinic wash their hands with this solution. And in the first few months, mortality rates massively plummeted and he thought they did stumble on a pretty clear finding that the cadaverous particles did exist and could be eliminated through this chlorinated lime solution. So he gets great results, and, and the reason that there isn't a bust or, or other commemoration of Dr. Semmelweis in every hospital in, in the world is because he couldn't really get the medical community to to buy what he was saying. I guess part of this is if you don't have germ theory, if you don't have an understanding of what's going on, and then you tell doctors— 
oh, it's you. You're making your patients sick. You're making your patients die. If that's not presented with a very winning smile and wrapped up in a very pretty bow, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of uh, agreement from your colleagues. No, and so the reaction to his initial findings was very skeptical. And people thought, well, if uh, if it's true that the cadaverous particles are causing this, uh, why do some people still die in the midwife clinic where there aren't any cadaverous particles? And And he couldn't really explain that. But rather than be upfront about what he thought he knew and didn't know and the limits of this, he went on quite an offensive and was very uh, confrontational with a lot of his colleagues who were skeptical about his claims and wrote a lot of public letters denouncing people who opposed or questioned his theories over a few decades, actually, yeah. I mean, in some ways, it was suggested, uh, as it has been suggested, his discovery was in some ways medically as big as anything of that moment, you know, as big as, as Edward Jenner, you know, finding a, a way to begin dealing with smallpox through inoculations. This was a gigantic discovery. But there's kind of a lesson here, too, which is that personality is important. You know, he, he just he wasn't a great salesman. I guess that's what I'm saying. Certainly not. Uh, he's, he's just sort of described as being a very angry, very intense, confrontational person. And he, he felt that he was in the right, and as it turns out, he was. But people felt like he was assaulting them with these kind of claims that he couldn't fully substantiate. And people just increasingly began to see him as a, a marginalized, mad figure, which, again, fed into his, I guess, sense of being ignored and excluded from this amazing discovery that he had made. Um, and, and when you say a marginalized figure and, and increasingly seeming to be rather mad, I mean, this, this uh, nothing could be a more paradoxical and bitter ending, right? He winds up in an asylum and, and explain the very bitter end, uh, Leah Ginevan, of, of Ignaz Semmelweis. He had three of his colleagues signed referrals, committing him to a mental asylum. And one day he was vacationing with his family. Uh, an, old fr- an old friend invited him to come out and see his sort of health spa retreat. Under that pretext, he was sent off to a asylum where at some point he was beaten by the guards and developed uh, sepsis and died shortly after at age 47. Mm. We're talking right now to Leah Ginevan, medical student, writer, and health policy researcher. She wrote an article on Ignaz Semmelweis for Method Science in the Making. Now, it's certainly, you know, more than settled medical science at this point that handwashing is a terrific way uh, to to prevent sepsis, to prevent the spread of germs, generally speaking. And obviously in hospital settings where there's a higher concentration uh, of, of medical dangers, it's an even more important thing to do. So does everybody do it? Uh, Unfortunately, his innovation hasn't been taken up as fully as most infectious disease specialists would like, I I expect. Handwashing is very accepted now. Most hospitals have some processes and protocols in place for doing it. However, the sheer amount of times that people are expected to wash their hands on shift can be sometimes hundreds of times in a 12-hour shift and if it's not done properly or if if they forget or or ignore that requirement, then they're putting patients at risk. So... There's a huge industry now in the States and internationally of how do you get doctors to wash their hands and how do you encourage it and make it as easy a process as possible. Well, obviously, education and spotting this uh, at the right time can make a big difference. Um, Leah Ginevan, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.
Uh, welcome back. We're devoting today's show to talk about uh, this condition. Uh, you may hear terms like septicemia or septic shock or just sepsis. Uh, it's not very well known. It's incredibly prevalent. It's unbelievably dangerous. Uh, one of the things we want to do is get you a little bit better acquainted with this. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Ulysses Wu, Chief of Infectious Disease at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Connecticut. In just a, a minute, you're going to meet uh, two gentlemen who learned about this condition in the hardest way possible and the most tragic way possible uh, by the loss of their respective offspring uh, to this disease. Before we get to that, though, um, Dr. Wu, you just listened to this story. And I know that the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, you're not hearing that story for the first time, right? You're, you're aware of of this kind of remarkable uh, paradox that, that he figured out something really important and then died from sepsis. Yes, I, I am aware of, of uh, his contributions. I, I am aware of his demise. But what I was not aware of was the passion that he actually had for it to the point where he was an angry, mad person. And I can empathize to a certain extent. Uh, my, my specialty is appropriate utilization of antibiotics. Um, mm. And part of that, the, I guess the analogous uh, uh, or the analogy with that with is with antibiotics, the, 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 the old thinking was just give as much and give as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And us as physicians, we, that's what we do. And now we have to realize that we can't kill everything with a cannon and that we have to use a more targeted approach. Um, so I, I sometimes feel as myself, I'm that mad, angry person who wants to do that appropriately. But the same thing with hand washing. Uh, as, as people who know me, I, I don't like shaking hands. And mm. part of that is due to uh, the, I think about the lost productivity in people hours from people shaking hands and transmitting diseases that way, whether it be a simple cold, they're calling out for a day, or they get influenza. But the handshaking, it's, it's, it's ironic, uh, despite some uh, vices work, the data still shows today that physicians and healthcare practitioners are more likely to hand wash on their way out of a room than going into a room. So mm-hmm. that perspective of there's nothing that I could possibly be bringing into this room still pervades to a certain extent. And so we see that with, with our observations in our study showing that, okay, well, coming in, we, we don't have to do anything, but coming out, we better make sure that we, we, uh, we, we do good, proper hand hygiene. Now, the best way for proper hand hygiene is actually washing your hands, and you should sing happy birthday. There's different studies. You should sing it three times. You should do it for X amount of time. But we've actually been using a lot of alcohol hand sanitizers. And it's not that they're more effective. It's just that it increased our compliance rate. People weren't washing their hands all the time. But with alcohol hand sanitizers, it's easier to just put a squirt in and then use that on your hands. But they've even looked at people's hands after they've sanitized, either with washing of hands and alcohol, and they've found plenty of things. So we're not even doing that correctly at this point. All right. So um, if only it were as easy as doing that correctly, not that that's going to be easy. It's hard to change cultures. It's hard to change the culture of, you know, you go into your doctor and you've got a persistent cold and he says, here's a Z-pack, you know, off on your way, whether that makes any sense. Hard to change cultures of, of hand washing. But there's a whole uh, lot of other education that needs to be done, and that's one of the reasons we have these uh, two guests here with us. Joining us right now uh, are Carl Flatley, uh, a retired endodontist and founder of the Sepsis Alliance. Uh, His 26-year-old daughter, Erin, died of sepsis after a minor surgical procedure. And Kieran Staunton, co-founder of the Irish Lobby for Immigration Reform, Uh, he and his wife started the Rory Staunton Foundation after their 12-year-old son, Rory, died from uh, sepsis. So, uh, Carl Flatley, I'm going to talk uh, first to you. Um, 
But maybe the place to begin is one of the things that we've said at other points on this show, which is our collective level of ignorance about this disease uh, is very high. This was, as I understand it from some of the reading I've done, not necessarily a a word that that you knew or a condition that you understood at the time that it hit your family. Uh, Yes. Can you hear me well? Yes, I can hear you okay, yeah. So this happened in 2002. I went to dental school in St. Louis. My first two years were with the medical students. I took all the academics they did, and then I branched off into dentistry, and they went on. We never heard, either medical or dental side, anything about sepsis. I then went on to specialize. I dealt with infections all the time, which is what endodontics is. And I never heard the word then or when I was in the service. And when my daughter went in for a simple hemorrhoidectomy and died five days later, the big problem was the five doctors treating her seemingly didn't know anything about it either because if she had been given antibiotics in the first 24 hours, she'd be sitting next to me right now. And the pain of losing someone that's not God's will and it was preventable is terrible. Uh, I would so admit, this, I, is, yeah. this has been what I do now. Um, how, how much of... Uh, how much of death from sepsis do you think is preventable? If everybody did everything exactly right, and let's just let's acknowledge we're here on planet Earth. N- everybody isn't ever going to do everything exactly right. And sometimes these uh, horrible situations break down because somebody wrote their phone number down the wrong way and didn't get the call to some. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which information can break down or people make mistakes. But if we right. got it a lot better, h- how much better could we be than we are right now with this? Well, first, you've got to recognize the problem, and the problem is we lose 700 people a day. We lose 263,000 people a year. Now, that's equal to two 747s crashing every day, day after day, killing everyone on board. Imagine that. And children, sepsis is the number one cause of death of children under five in the world. We lose 12 children an hour. And it's been said, and this is all I've done for 14 years, this is all I do. And I've had health professionals tell me that sepsis, if treated the correct way, appropriately, and promptly, 80% is preventable because we know what works. There are hospitals now, because of what they're doing, and it's system-wide. I'm not talking about just a couple doctors who are sepsis champions. I'm talking about a system-wide hospital effort, and Mr. Staunton knows some of these hospitals, too. They can reduce their mortality by 40 to 50%. And I am told that less than half the hospitals in the United States have an evidence-based protocol. So when you talk about 265 million people dying a year and 80% is preventable, oh my gosh. Yeah, that, that is that, that is a big toll. Well, I'd like to bring uh, Kieran Staunton into this conversation. Uh, and Kieran Staunton, uh, as we said before, uh, lost his 12-year-old son, Rory, in 2012 uh, when uh, he cut his arm while diving for a basketball in gym class, uh, went to the doctor the next day with vomiting and fever and pain in his leg, was sent to the emergency room, but uh, doctors thought he had a typical childhood case of stomach bug or dehydration. Um, you know, one, one of the things that we said at the beginning of the show that Dr. Wu said at the beginning of the show, but uh, but Kieran Staunton, maybe it's a good thing to reinforce is anybody can get this. I think when we think about sepsis, if we know anything about it, if we have some kind of scratchy understanding, we think, oh yeah, well, it's something you get because you already have some other underlying disease or because you're really old or something like that. But somebody can be you know healthy one week and, and facing this in the next, correct? Colin, thank you and thanks to Carl. First and foremost, Anyone can guess it. Even worse again is both Carl's daughter and my son Rory 
faith called preventable. My son, Rory, was a flashing light for sepsis when he walked into the hospital. Sepsis is very, very easy to rule out, to identify. And it's not going through a needle in a haystack. It's merely by looking at their breathing, looking at skin, looking at heart rate. And the Roy's regulations in New York that are now saving between five and 8,000 New Yorkers a year have, and the fact that they are looking for it, they identify it, and the first thing they do is put them on a broad-based antibiotic until they rule it in or rule it out. When we look at Northwell hospitals in New York, they have reduced sepsis fatalities by over 50% in five years, Intermountain in Utah. And yes, we still see that sepsis is killing more Americans than AIDS, prostate cancer, and breast cancer combined. And you will also look at the amount of money it is costing the U.S. dollar, U.S. taxpayers. It costs $20 billion. Treating sepsis in U.S. hospitals cost the U.S. economy $20 billion in 2011. So we look at all of this and we say, well, we have done this in New York. Between five and 8,000 New Yorkers a year have, are living. Since our son died, two million Americans have died. Um, I, I, yeah, I just also want to drive home that point about the cost of it. Not that cost uh, should be the, the driving concern here, but um, that $20 billion figure that you, that you cited, uh, I looked at those uh, figures too, and it, what was remarkable was that it's, it's the leading cost. In other words, in terms of treating hospitalized people, it's the leading thing that we pay for. Uh, the next closest competitor is osteoarthritis, which is at $15 billion. So this is, it's a gigantic problem. And, and once again, um, um, I, I'm, uh, my sense, Kieran, is that you were in the dark about this, too, that this was uh, going into let, this. Let me, sorry, let, me, yeah. let me just go back and say sure. that two million. Two million uh, Americans were hospitalized. Yeah. Uh, sorry, more. Um, CDC say maybe two million died. We know at least one million died. Mm. Yes, we had never heard of sepsis. And I think what really worries us even more is the hospital weren't looking out for sepsis. The doctors couldn't recognize sepsis. Um, I want to ask Dr. Wu no. about this. Do, do, Dr. Wu, do you think doctors are better trained or gradually getting better at, at – I mean, one of the – the CDC, one of their speculations is that one reason we see a rise in diagnosed sepsis cases is because doctors are getting better at looking for it. Uh, recognition is certainly part of the battle and education is certainly part of the battle. The The issue with sepsis is that it's not something that we're going to prevent, but is it something that we can have an early reaction and interaction with to stop the morbidity and mortality that's associated with it. The figures that were thrown out, uh, you know, 263 deaths per year, it's the ninth leading cause of disease-related deaths. And so can we improve on that figure? Absolutely. And so it goes back to what I said in the very beginning. It is both underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed. That line that we walk on, that we try to do the right thing, that we don't want to do too much, but we certainly do want to do the right thing, is becoming thinner and thinner. And if there's any suspicion for sepsis, the key is to have early intervention and treat as if sepsis until it is ruled out or completely ruled in at this point. Um, you know, both, both, go, yeah, go ahead. I think going back, if I might go, go back to that for one minute, is that our son didn't get the maximum treatment. He got the minimum. And, and I, I, I think that when we look, if Roy Staunton on that night had been diagnosed when he was a flashing red light and got a shot of a broad-based antibiotics, and I think Dr. Dr. Flatley and North Shore LIJ and many others out there who are saying, was, well, 
maybe there can be that number of people getting sepsis, but certainly they don't need to die. A broad-based antibiotic would have saved our son and the people who are being saved because we must look at 7% of the body per hour. That's how much someone loses. It's not something that they can wait there for day in, day out, day in, day out. It's 7% per hour. That's how much the body loses. So the only way you can try and arrest that in the short term is to give them a broad-based antibiotic and get straight away at it. That is not being done in, in the places where people are dying. If, if a child went in today to a New York hospital, they go right onto a sepsis watch. If they go into North Shore LIJ, oh, sorry, it's now called Northwell, sepsis isn't a killer if you went to Northwell, but if you went to a hospital in Connecticut, it could well be. Um, the uh, maybe you could also just uh, clarify that seven percent thing. If you lose seven percent per hour, are you talking about seven percent of your recuperative ability? Seven percent of what uh, do you lose? Well, mortality. Well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, yeah, Carl. So for every hour delay of antibiotics, your chance of dying goes up eight percent. So if you sit there for six hours, which a lot of people do in a reception room, waiting room, their chance of dying went up fifty percent because they weren't treated properly. Well. If, effectively, quickly, you know, properly. Um, Carl Flatley, I, I mean, I've looked at both of the websites for your foundations, and they contain a, a lot of information and people sharing their stories. And so, Carl Flatley, you know, apart from the things that we've talked about now, what do you want to accomplish in terms of the either the information you spread or what people learn about this condition? Um, is it, inf- I mean, a, a lot of this has to do with informing doctors and hospitals and, and pressuring doctors and hospitals to do some of the things that you think are important. I, see, I assume also just educating the public so that, in fact, they're not in the dark about sepsis as they head into a crisis like this. So I'll, I'll give you just two things for your, your audience to take away with, and that is to realize that anyone who dies of any infection dies of sepsis. So if a person dies of flu, pneumonia, meningitis, MRSA, they die of sepsis. So that ought to scare everyone because we all get infections. So that's number one. The second thing is most people have heard of CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, right? Mm-hmm. What they need to think about is TPR, that is their temperature, their pulse, and respiration, three things they can manage. So if they have any kind of infection and they get an elevated temperature, a blood pressure that falls or even rises, and respiration, they're breathing hard, they need to go to the hospital immediately or call 911 and ask for a sepsis screening. Every person when they go to the hospital needs to ask for a sepsis screening if they exhibit these signs. If they only know those two things, that will save their lives in a lot of cases. Um, and and uh, Kieran, I wanted to give you a moment too. Is there a, sure. any other piece of wisdom or information that you, you just, would want to pass let on? Let me yeah, just sure. give you two. When our son died, we went on CDC's website. Under A to Z, under the letter S, they had nothing for sepsis. It took us 12 months almost to get them to put something for sepsis on. We have Roy's regulations in New York. Roy's regulations are saving lives. Our aim, the aim of the Roy Staunton Foundation, is to have uh, uh, Roy's regulations of sepsis protocols in all states. We have it by 2020. We have regulations passed in Illinois at the moment. They're in a number of other states. People in Connecticut should wonder, well, if we go to a hospital in New York, yes, we know we're safe from sepsis. It's checked for us. But why don't we have that same right in Connecticut? Why haven't we it in Florida? Why don't we have it in Ohio? Why don't we have this? Because if you go onto our website, you will see the faces of people that Roy's regulations 
have saved. Now, there was no one there to save our children. There was no one there to save Aaron or Rory. But since Rory died, since Aaron died, millions have died. Since Rory died, a million have died. And before our show goes out, children will have died from sepsis. Sepsis is preventable. Sepsis death, I'm sorry, death from sepsis is preventable. Rory Staunton's death was preventable. Our big issue is, for people listening to this, is to go onto our website and say, well, how do we get it in? And how do we educate everyone? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with asking your doctor for a second opinion. And if as a parent, as we now know, we should not have to go out to buy a coffin for our child. No one should have to go out and do that. And it's not a, a situation of, oh, well, it's a one in a million, it's a needle in a haystack. It's not that. It is absolutely so preventable. Just like heart attack years ago, when people started looking for it and treating it, and that's where we're going in the future. I believe that the, the US government and state governments need to say, we are not burying any more people because, oh, we didn't want to overdo something. We need to now look and say, let's not bury any more children. Because by this time next year, this day next year, more than a quarter of a million Americans will have died from sepsis. Most of them preventable deaths. Um, Dr. Wu, we're almost out of time, but I want you to uh, get in one more word here. First of all, um, uh, in fact, Kieran is bringing up some comparisons state to state. Uh, From your perspective, how well is Connecticut doing? Does Connecticut need more than it has right now? I, I think the uh, and it's it's wonderful having these two gentlemen on because I think public education and health awareness is absolutely the most important thing that we have this recognition uh, in terms of what the Connecticut hospitals do. I can't speak for the others, but uh, certainly at St. Francis, we we have been. Uh, working on and modifying for a long time our sepsis bundles. And so we do have early recognition of sepsis, and we have resuscitation to be given early on. We have antibiotics that need to be given on. We have uh, blood pressure support to be given on. We monitor all of their organs to to look at to see if there's any dysfunction. All this it has been being done, and it's still being done at this point, and will change uh, as more data comes out on sepsis, exactly what can we do to help uh, decrease the amount of sepsis-related deaths. So uh, the report card on uh, Connecticut hospitals, I, I, I can't speak to the others, but I know at St. Francis this has been in place and is still being in place and always being modified. And I think that's the key for even any of the hospitals, whether it be New York, whether it be Long Island, is that we don't get into this checkbox and say, okay, we washed our hands, this is good, and we're going to take care of sepsis because it is ever-evolving at this point. All right. We are uh, unfortunately out of time right now. I want to thank everybody who participated in today's show, including Leah Ginevan, whom you heard earlier, uh, Dr. Ulysses Wu, who is Section Chief of Infectious Disease for St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Also joining us, Carl Flatley, a retired uh, endodontist and founder of Sepsis Alliance, uh, Kieran Staunton, co-founder of the Irish Lobby for Immigration Reform. But more pertinently, he and his wife started the Rory Staunton Foundation. Uh, And both of those foundations, both of those groups, are online. Uh, you can learn more about them. Thanks so much to Betsy Kaplan. It's great to have a nurse as your producer. Uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan for putting together today's show. And thanks to Jonathan McNichol for being on the board. We'll be back tomorrow with a completely different subject. <laughs>